Prison Camp is a war movie subgenre we've been sentenced to several times, most often within the context of World War II. And it's not a perfect fit in the category of war films because these films take place so far from any battlefront and don't occupy the same emotional realm. We're not finding out if it's possible for an atheist to be in a foxhole or gripping the edges of our seats while a pilot initiates a barrel roll to avoid a missile. These films about prisoners of war rarely break out into combat and explosions unless John Rambo shows up to take some photos. They, by their very nature, unfold at a different pace and explore a different kind of drama experienced during war. It's not the sudden impact of combat, but the slow burn, the building pressure of captivity at the hands of an enemy that creates the tension. And we've already hit some of the high points of this subgenre on previous episodes of Friendly Fire, but it's been impossible up to now to have had a comprehensive conversation about POW films without talking about today's 1963 John Sturgis classic. With a cast led by cool-as-hell Steve McQueen, stunningly good-looking James Garner, and absolute unit Charles Bronson, the film follows British Anzac and American officers of their respective air corps who have re-specialized in their captivity as an ingenious squadron of escape artists. They have reimagined the command structure to include new jobs like manufacturer, scrounger, forager, and tunnel king. Sir Richard Attenborough serves as Big X, who oversees the construction of three tunnels out of camp, through which the plan is to send out dozens if not hundreds of men. To achieve this objective would mean the Nazis would have to use their resources to round up the escapees, drawing their focus away from the front lines. During its nearly three-hour runtime, the film pits Luftwaffe prison guards in charge of this freshly constructed prison camp against a hyper-resourceful group of prisoners depicting their relentless demonstration of prison break tradecraft. It's like they've imprisoned a camp full of MacGyvers. It's one of those rare films with 40 white guys with speaking parts, with roughly the same haircut, where we're able to follow who's who and what's going on at all times. People are doing interesting, specialized work and devising ways to hide tunnels, or how to dig them, or ways to blend into the population of Germany and France once their escape is made. And much like a heist film, half of the math is about how to get away once the deed is done and after the two hours of prison camp time, this film fractures into a half a dozen storylines as the various groups take different paths out of Germany. The enemy is the Germans, but it's also claustrophobia and homesickness and the toll imprisonment is taking on all of their bodies. But in spite of these odds, we watch them teach themselves enough German to fool a border guard or tailor suits out of bedclothes. It is a ton of fun, and it's a very special movie, so we have a very special episode about it with our good friend Chuck Bryant, host of the excellent Movie Crush podcast. Well, like I told Max, I was trying to cut my way through your wire because I wanted to get out. Today on Friendly Fire, The Great Escape. Hello and welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that has put all its rotten eggs in one basket. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. I'm John Roderick. And I'm Chuck Bryant. Hey, it's our annual <laughs> tradition of doing a crossover episode with Movie Crush, the great 
podcast hosted by Chuck. Hi, right. Chuck. Hi, Chuck, you're the rottenest egg in this basket. <laughs> I was waiting to introduce myself and for one of you to go, your papers, please. <laughs> papers, bitte. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. This is a movie that I had seen a bunch of times as a kid, but you said you'd never seen it before, right, Adam? First timer. Wow. wow. Hey. Yeah. Does it hold up? Does it seem like a good movie to you? That's the review portion of the show, dude. Oh, just just jump into the end. Yeah. We don't have a lot of time here. I mean, Does it hold up considering you've never seen it before? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you watched... Compared to like, the first time I never saw it, the second time was much better. There are lots of movies that, like, if you see them as a kid, are very meaningful to you. And if you are introduced them to them as an... I've heard... I've never seen Goonies, but I've heard that, like, it's not worth trying to get into it in your 30s because... I want to spend an entire show interrogating your non-seeing of Goonies. <laughs> uh, interrogating drink. <laughs> I never saw Goonies either. Ooh. What? Uh, it was too late Can for me Can we do a special episode new. that's just Goonies <laughs> yeah. with these two? That's a bit of a war movie. Wow. <laughs> Suddenly, your your uh, definition of a war movie has loosened up. <laughs> well, you guys wanted to do fucking Tropic Thunder. Ch- Chuck was being a real snob about what we picked <laughs> oh, for this episode. <laughs> Let's do a real war movie. This is really a, a jailbreak movie more than anything. It really is. And I was struck by the, the like leitmotif and the theme song being really, really similar to the one in Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah. The, uh, the little, like, whistling theme that they come back to over and over again. So much so that at the, at the end of our River Kwai episode, I whistled the wrong song, <laughs> and it was this song that I was whistling. Wow, how did you know to do that? He I just he, he When he was a kid, he had an album of all the great jailbreak World War II movies themes <laughs> by Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. Also an album of nothing but whistling songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why that is. Like, was there, like, in the 60s, were they like, yeah, this is the kind of music you have to have in a prison, like a war prison jailbreak movie? Yeah, kind of jaunty. At Uh, the Academy Awards (laughs) in 63, was this one of the best songs? Like, they just had a whistler out there on stage? I don't know. There is no whistling, though. And you guys keep saying whistling. It's fife. It's fife fife music. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but this was the heyday of the great movie score. And, And this score is kind of insane because it beep it beeps along for a little bit in in the fife and then all of a sudden it gets really dark and serious and then it pops back up into a different kind of second theme with a three-hour movie you can really like dig into a lot of different emotional territories and then like recover from them and go somewhere else and this movie really does that like it it has moments of like beauty and joy and moments of like real darkness. Does it read to you as a comedy? Adam seeing it for the first time does it did it feel like a did it feel comedic? It didn't veer all the way into comedy, but it definitely got out of the lane of serious war movie POW piece. There's a little Hogan's Heroesy feel to parts of it for sure where like you never feel like the in the camp that they are truly like threatened. And I'm always amazed it's sort of like with Hogan's heroes too, with these camps that they're just allowed, you know, from the moment this film opens, they're planning their escape 
yeah. and they have a big meeting in the big meeting room and there's no, so much no like trade craft to, to that it's so awesome like oh, yeah. every like everything they try is like oh that's a great idea yeah <laughs> and then like, yeah they're really supportive yeah of each other <laughs> in a way that i found surprising although edinburgh was a bit of a dick at times yeah that was uh, his job my god he was yeah. the big x <laughs> that's true the big x you can't mess around <laughs> said ladies and gentlemen welcome to stalag 17 <laughs> oh god <laughs> you know the 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 premise of those Luftwaffe prison camps was that they treated the prisoners really well because of this whole like aristocratic yeah. to the manner born uh, quality that that the air force had still is it airmen jail airmen and army jails army is that how it works that was the idea yeah that and the navy oh, navy sends navy to davy jones locker yeah the <laughs> <laughs> yeah the premise was right that the luftwaffe was hosting the enemy combatants their their their, their air uh, peers they have a much better working relationship with their jailers in this movie than they did in, in Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, yeah, yeah I don't think up, you see them saluting each other. But they straight up say uh, in that first meeting between the big, who kind of looks like you, Ben, weirdly. Did you guys pick up on that? The, the, <laughs> the, head the of, main Nazi? No, 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 no. Every other, bad Nazi looks like Ben a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah I noticed guy. that. Yeah. He, uh, oh, the British guy. Yeah, I do look British. <laughs> they have that. Uh, I don't know. I just if I would have said you're a French, you'd have a heart on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they had that first meeting where he's basically like, you know, you know, we're going to try and escape. Like, what do you expect us to not do that? That is our sworn duty as officers. And the Germans guys kind of like, yeah, I understand. Yeah. They make like, the case. <laughs> they make the case that it's their sworn duty because it will like tie up resources and material that the Germans would otherwise be inflicting yeah. on the front. And I don't really feel like they pay that off in the actual jailbreak scenes. Like there's like Steve McQueen for sure does his part. Sure, like he is lifting his weight in terms of like drawing troops like and a hundred guys and, at least. Yeah, and yeah. trucks and stuff. But everybody else is just getting nabbed by the Gestapo, right? What's interesting about the geography of this movie is that the the Stalag Luft three or whatever, wherever they actually were, was in Silesia, like it was in Poland. And they why'd you look at Adam? Because Adam is uh, the resident uh, Polish authority. It's in Poland, right, Adam? It is. Yeah. yeah. They said Germany in the movie, though. Well, because it was in uh, but occupied Poland. Well, in, subsumed into the oh, German right. nation. No, kind of the opposite. It was Prussia that, after the war, turned into Poland, but traditional Prussian territory, but way, way east. So in that early scene where we see the Russian guys with the fur hats going out to chop wood, which is weird because we never see them again. And it seemed like at that moment, they sort of lived in the camp or something. I don't. I, I never didn't understand why those guys were there. And, well, it was yeah. like a fresh built camp, and my theory was that they were like the people that built it, and now they're leaving. Nice. They were just finishing up the punch list. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, so those guys, you know, if if this, I mean, taking place in Poland, like it's they were sort of a natural, maybe not locals, but yeah, it wasn't that far. Anyway, yeah. so in the course of these guys escaping, we see them make it to Paris. We see them make it to Switzerland, yeah. make it to the Baltic Sea. Coburn's going to Spain. So for these guys to have to like spread all across Europe like that, yeah. It and then we see them one by one get nabbed. It would have meant that people were, that cops were on the lookout for them, troops were chasing them kind of throughout Germany, and that's pretty 
That would expend some resources. The camp didn't read as Polish to me because the barbed wire fence wasn't <laughs> inside the barracks. Mm-hmm. You just wanted to you wanted to get there first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take that one, and now you don't get any. <laughs> but your guy was the coolest, one of the coolest guys in the movie, the Polish guy, Charles Chuck, Brunson. Chuck Brunson. Man, how handsome! A, how handsome is he? Yeah, at he that beautiful. age. And how fucking handsome is James Garner, man? Yeah. I mean, I just saw him, and he's like 35, 36. I'm like, he looks like fucking George Clooney. I uh, have a very distinct memory of watching this movie when I was a kid, and my mom leaning over when Charles Bronson was on, on screen, all sweaty and muscly, going, he was kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, Except 5'4". Yeah. <laughs> sure. But yeah, I mean, at one point, Steve McQueen says that he's like just got out of college or is in college. There's a there's a lot of of age fudging. Yeah. <laughs> because these guys probably most of them would have been about 23, 24. Right. Yeah, yeah that's true. Well, maybe he got held back. Right. He, well, he took all those summers off racing motorcycles and yeah. took him a little bit longer. <laughs> there was a moment when this movie didn't have much Steve McQueen in it from what I read. And McQueen fought the director for more him. <laughs> and McQueen's a guy who was taking a limo to and from the set every day. Like he had a lot of power at this time in his career. You remember the famous, there's a famous story about him making a movie with Yul Brenner. And uh, every time he was in the background of a scene, he was always uh, futzing with, he was either futzing with his gun. It was like a Western. Yeah. He was always loading his gun or, or um, and eating an orange with the peel still on <laughs> to the extent that Yul Brenner complained like this guy's trying to steal every scene he's in. Right. Because your you know your eye would be drawn to the background. What the fuck is Steve McQueen doing? So he he knew what he was doing. Uh, I love how early on in the film though, when they immediately they're there and they're checking out how to get out, and that one guy just jumps in the fucking Christmas tree truck. Yeah. <laughs> it's so lo-fi. Boy, He's like all right, I've been here for three and a half minutes. I'm gonna I'm gonna get out of here, guys. Low key, one of the scariest stunts in movie history is the guy stabbing right. the the heap of of Christmas trees with a giant pitchfork, and then a guy that's like. Yeah. six inches behind where he's dabbed going like, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out. <laughs> yeah. You know, the safety back then wasn't exactly there. Like, where is he? Oh, I don't know. Just stab low. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, I mean like the, those opening moments have a ton of comedy. Like I love the, the smash cut when like, Steve McQueen and the mole are describing their escape plan of of pushing the dirt behind them by tunneling three feet under the wall. They're like going over this plan and they're like, that's so stupid. It just might work. And then smash cut to them going into the cooler, just caked in mud. Yeah. Like what a great moment. McQueen's definitely the comic relief of this film. Yeah. They're in the wow scene. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The Americans, right? I mean, he's the, he's, he stands in for all Americans there. So he's got to have that swagger. Yeah. How many Americans? There's the three Garner. Well, I guess the three guys that do the Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah, Garner McQueen and the guy whose job it is to throw McQueen's baseball glove back at him every time he gets right. recaptured. That motif. <laughs> who, he clearly doesn't throw. That was the a baseball. real mean Joe Green moment right there. That was a little before your time, Adam. I'm a collector of pop culture okay. trivia. Well, that 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 scene was crazy to me because. For Steve McQueen to leave his baseball glove behind suggests that he doesn't think he's going to make it because that is a great glove. He's had it his whole life. 
I read that that was an anachronistic glove. It didn't. They didn't look like that during the war years. Uh, is that your moment of pedantry, or just no? The warm up. That is a moment of pedantry, but uh, feels like it might have been his grandfather's glove. Don't put the little the little sound effect on that, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the official. <laughs> I could actually do my moment of pedantry right now. It wouldn't be terrible. Well, let's hear it. Uh, I should preface this because we have movie crush listeners right. we always do like a a moment of pedantry which is something that i found in the imdb goof section about the film that uh somebody took exception to and i try to find like the most pedantic one i can i can find usually that doesn't have to do with epaulettes yeah so this is the uh this is the fourth of july uh set piece and uh they uh the americans uh present invitations for a celebratory drink at the door uh, to the hut, Goff declares, down with the British, to which Roger and Mac enthousi- enthusiastically reply, here, here, and quite right, too. Goff's error was saying British, when the correct usage would be the English. In this context, the appeal of an inebriated Goff to a bemused Roger, based on South African Roger Bushell <laughs> oh, and God. the Scottish MacDonald, would be sufficient to excite a moment of humor <laughs> between the three historical enemies of England. Oh, wow. So this pet, this pedant well took exception to the construction of a joke right. that a drunk guy made. Well done, though. I mean, he's right. He's not right. I don't think. I think he's wrong because we can assume it's a he. But I just uh, like yeah, the so. the phrase "the excitement of humor." Yeah. That's great. I have done the math on how jokes work. Surely you have been at the pointed end of the. Uh, it's uh, British, not English. It's English, not British. Uh, internet pedant stick. That was yeah. before I started muting everyone on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, uh, I had to how- mute a guy today that called me a ding dong because John Roderick calls me a ding dong all the time, and now people on the internet think it's fine to call me a ding dong. You just muted him just because he called you a ding dong. Yeah. It was a ding dong of affection. I, I've taken an extremely liberal approach to my use of the mute function. Well done, boys. Yeah, not even dingling. Didn't even use dingling, which yeah. is slightly less bad, I guess. I don't know. Uh, how great does this Panavision look, though? It's spectacular. Yeah. It's also just a great uh, a great transfer to HD. Of, of, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful movie. I don't think I'd ever seen it in high def, but it looks gorgeous. Well, it, it really shines. You know, in the camp, you can only do so much, but it really shines once they get out of there. Yeah. And yeah. you get, like, those flying the shots. Territorial the territorial stuff is great. Stuff. Really gorgeous. Those sequences really struck me because I wasn't conscious of feeling like closed in and confined in the first two hours of the movie but that's kind of like the you know the mark between two and three hours when they all get out and it is like suddenly like the tone of the music changes and you feel like like free and there are these like long meditative moments where like the two tunnel kings are like in a rowboat and they just hold the shot for 20 seconds while they row across some beautiful Bavarian river and you're just like, wow. Which was a great, like, as it turns out, plan. Yeah. There's no one out there. They were... I kept wanting uh, Attenborough and and the other guy to hide, just like, go hide somewhere for a few days. Quit just walking around cities. Yeah, You've got a very noticeable birthmark on your face. (laughs) Just lay low, man. Even the worst police sketch artist would be able to, like, make something that looked a little bit like Yeah, yeah. He's got this here. (laughs) Eddie, have you thought how you're going to get rid of this dirt? Yes, I have. Uh, What do you think about the the Attenborough hat tilt? One of the better hat tilts. It's a great hat tilt. It's a great hat. 
Um, I feel like it might spared no expense. It might have been a little (laughs) jaunty for Nazi Germany. You know, they had a lot of uniform jauntiness. Uh, The Nazis did. Yeah, it's sort of the black trench coat uh, era of German civilians. And that that hat looks a little bit like New York Broadway 1939. Right. I wondered about it. Yeah. Well, he also tilts his fedora once he gets out. So that's his move for sure. Yeah. He's, He's the only hat tilter on the on the side of the Allies. Yeah, he's got hat tilt going the whole time. Yeah, yeah, that's his move. They, so the civilian clothes are all made out of uniforms that they like put boot black bit on of and suspension stuff? of disbelief going with how much just raw material they needed. I love the like level of sophistication they bring to the jailbreak, though. It's like it's totally unbelievable, and it's yeah, and it's a real story, right? Like they like this actually kind of happened, right? It is, but this is way fictionalized. It's a real story, and and I think the the uh, the moment of pedantry that was true at the time uh, was that what got left out was how many German civilians actually helped, including guards, helped hmm. them in their escape. So a lot of those documents that they actually used weren't forgeries. They were just brought in by German civilians and clothes and tools and maps and all that stuff. It really felt like the ferret would become a composite character for that type of person, but they never positioned the ferret that way. Some of it was that the Luftwaffe was not full of Nazis. So there were a lot of people because they were these sort of upper class. Yeah, Luger is definitely like disgusted by what happened to the 50 that get murdered. Well, he's super contemptuous of the high Hitler, how Hitler, like you can see from the very beginning, he's interesting. He thinks of himself as not as Hitlery as you guys. I don't want to say Heil anything. All right, (laughs) Heil Hitler. Now, was that true to how it could have been? Absolutely. And what about what I also wondered about was not to both sides it. Fuck, <laughs> I'm against the Germans in World War II, but there were a lot uh, that weren't. This is a great movie if you were against the Germans in World War II because you get to see a lot of them get kicked in the teeth and stuff. <laughs> but what about the the notion that the prisoners had things that the guards wouldn't have, like yeah, red, cho- red Cross packages, chocolate and, and coffee, and they could get mail from home. Interesting, but and they didn't just take that and be like, "I'll be taking this coffee." No, because of the Geneva Convention and the Red Cross. I mean, there were all these rules. What they didn't have was their own luggage and their own personal items. That was greatly exaggerated in this film. That they yeah. would have baseball mitts and yeah. You know, but that's the whole back. notion with the ferret was yeah. Uh, I mean, that kind of that was that kind he of could a be fun bribed scene with, with cigarettes and chocolate. Jimmy I, Garner basically molesting him. <laughs> trying to shove co- chocolate down his pants. What an I'm awesome come up for those uh, those Russian uh, wood woodcutters at the beginning, where they oh, get a yeah. bunch of cigarettes for like their axe and their and their hat and their coat, and then yeah. they get the ha- axe, hat, and coat back immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that did not. Hey, take free very cigarette, long. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I mean, like, there's a ton of sophistication on the ally side but also there's a ton of sophistication on the german side in terms of like nabbing these guys and like catching the escapes like the case is made that this is like an elite unit of prison guards right right these are the best of the luftwaffe's best although i think all the guards and all the people that would have been in the luftwaffe and working at this prison camp would have been stationed here because they weren't they didn't have flight status is this a plum gig like because they 
the, the ferret's constant fear is getting sent to the Russian front. Right. And I was like, yeah, this seems way better than that. Well, the commandant says, like, let's just wait out the war here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty. Like all of us. Yeah. That's a that's yeah. a pretty tempting offer. Like, oh, right. Just wait out the war. Hmm. No. <laughs> We're going to escape and make your life hell and get shot in the end. Yeah. You're going to get fired. And probably killed. But the weird thing about the, the, the that that in a war full of atrocity, murders, uh, millions getting murdered, there were these little pockets of just like tally ho. Uh, this is this is good sport. Yeah, like it suggests a fraternity of airmen. Yeah, and and like a a higher class of of respect. And you see it in you see it in war movies where you're, the the ship will get sunk by the sub, and the captain will be welcomed in and you know given a cup of coffee like all these rules of engagement that um that make war seem fun <laughs> i mean this definitely had that feel of uh it's one of the least threatening world war Two prison camp films and yeah. fairly non-violent in its depiction of of death i mean when the prisoners are marched out of the truck and shot with the machine gun you only see the machine gun yeah. For example. And yeah. like, I think the most disturbing depiction of someone dying was the Donald Pleasance character and the blood that went all, all over James Garner's face. Like right. it's a very, uh, for as much implied violence as there isn't, yeah. as there is in the film, there isn't a lot of like disturbing, bloody death. Well, and no it. attempt was made to make that blood look like blood yeah. either. It looks like pomegranates. Yeah, yeah it looks like <laughs> Garner was eating a delicious cherry pie <laughs> out in that field. Boy, you knew Donald Pleasance was going to be a problem from the very beginning when he walks in and talks about being a bird watcher. You're just yeah. like, oh boy, this guy's... He's yeah. great in this movie. <laughs> I only was familiar with him uh, through the Halloween films. I'd oh, never yeah. seen him play a role like this before. Yeah. Apparently, he played Himmler in the sequel to this movie. He oh, like switched sides in the sequel. The Greater Escape. <laughs> it's like I think there's. It's literally called The Great Escape Two. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he was the president of the United States in Escape from New York. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's but, uh, but weirdly, Donald Pleasance was actually in the Royal Air Force, shot down over Germany, and imprisoned in a wartime prison camp. Are you serious? Yeah. So, wow. And there's a story while they were filming this movie where he started to kind of offer some suggestions to the director, like, oh, you know, it'd be a, a good if the lamp hung like so. And the director was like, thanks, kid. Stay in school. <laughs> and chased him out. And then somebody was like, you know, <laughs> old boy, he actually was in the camps. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he was like brought in and given the, you know. Right. Uh, really, he, he added a lot of, of veritas. And he went, hey, how'd you like to pay Himmler in the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> but, but going through all of the actors, they all served in, in the Marines or the Army or the Air Corps. Like this whole, this whole cast is that World War II generation. Yeah. I think uh, Garner is maybe the youngest, and he was in Korea. Really, but a lot of a lot of them were World War II vets, various I, theaters. I read that uh, Charles Bronson was a coal miner before he became an actor, and so he actually, similar to Pleasance, brought a bunch of like tunneling technique to the to the film that they didn't have before. <laughs> he was like a teenage coal miner, right? Yeah, like, like and legit and, claustrophobic. Yeah, which is oh, really. 
a, a weird plan B. Like, if this acting thing doesn't work out, I can always go back to coal mine. <laughs> hey, I don't like tight spaces. <laughs> you know he got his, where he got his name, right? That story. Because hmm. he was Charles, you know, insert Polish name. Brzezanskowitz. <laughs> and he, uh, he went to audition at the Paramount Pictures and went through the Bronson Gate and they asked him what his name was and that's where he got it just from the you know the bronze cool. entrance of Paramount Pictures that's a cool story yeah his Polish last name was just CZK 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 <laughs> <laughs> I kept thinking of the Reservoir Dogs line too whoa baby I mean this cat is like Charles Bronson in the Great Escape <laughs> I have kind of a three tunnels theory of this movie hmm oh boy <laughs> Tom go on. They never go in the in 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 Dick Tunnel, do they? Sure don't. They spend all the time in Tom Tunnel and Harry Tunnel. That's right. It's too bad. That would have been great for us. You need to prepare Harry Tunnel before entry, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so which one gets shut down with the discovery of the coffee by the ferret? Tom Tunnel. That's okay. Tom, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised of how little like after that. I mean, there was no lockdown. It was just sort of like, well, we, we found this, and I'm sure you guys weren't doing anything else. Yeah. Carry on. Well, it's a, that was a major operation, that tunnel. That's kind of astonishing that they had three going at the same well, time. Well, that's true. I guess that was the point. I, I was surprised that the Germans didn't do a little bit more like in-your-face dunking on them, yeah. having discovered their tunnel when it was nearing completion. <laughs> yeah, just like, <laughs> There's not even a hint of a rifle butt smashed against the face of a guy no. who lives in those barracks. Nope, they all just come out and go, Meh. Did you miss light. that part of the story? The thing is, there's no, the, there's a, even though it's not a comedy, the movie is extremely light. We don't really. We get a little bit of backstory of everybody. It's kind of an Ten minutes from movie. the end, you're reminded. Oh yeah, Nazis are evil. Yeah, right. right. The people could die, but but it's there's n everyone is friends. There's not a single competition between anyone in the camp. Yeah, nobody is a traitor. Like Bronson, his fear is not played as cowardice. Right. Right. It 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 almost upsets the apple cart. But anyway, you never get. There's no. There's no actual tension, and it's a little bit it's a little bit unreal. Fifteen big stars, there's six hundred extras, and everybody's a hero. Yeah, if you believed that they're like focusing one hundred percent of their energy on the escape attempt, you couldn't also hold in your mind that they were like growing enough potatoes to distill three huge jugs of moonshine. You know, <laughs> it takes a long time to grow a potato. And that many potatoes. Yeah. They do interesting things with the passage of time in this film, like with the raking of their mm -hmm. of their plots. And then a few scenes later, you see some growth there. Like they are suggesting time passing here. Yeah, I could never tell way. when it was because they were singing Christmas carols. But it was also Fourth of July. It should have been really cold during the Christmas carol singing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it, I feel like it was all, I can't, t I don't know how much time elapsed yeah. at all. Like yeah, that it, was tough. It, and I feel like the director just didn't care. It seemed basically. like wherever they shot this was super far north because the light is like outside Munich. super angly. Like, yeah, it was, there was a studio uh, in Munich and they built this like kind of at the edge of the, the woods next to the studio. So kind of right beside this is a big, you know, film lot. Wow. That's why it was so beautiful when they 
after the escape when we see them. Oh, yeah, they're in Bavaria. They're in Bavaria, gorgeous. right? Yeah. Not like they're in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> Did you guys pick up on James Coburn being Australian at all? Oh, I picked up on what a, a like Mary Poppins, Dick Van Dyke <laughs> level bad accent he was rocking. There was, I thought he was American. There was really no hint of an Australian accent. What's interesting is I don't think they gave him very many lines. He yeah. he's in the movie a lot and he's he's doing a lot, but. He he really chokes his lines back because I think he recognizes and everybody recognizes that he's not he did not nail the accent. I expected him to fuck up everything. Like they spent a lot of time on boy, his big bag is going to be a problem. Like oh, in right. the, the hole, the and I'm truck. like, oh shit, he's the guy that's going to blow it for yeah. everyone. What was in the bag? Why right. was it so important? Yeah, I don't know. That was where the MacGuffin was. Yeah, he made. They needed know. that for Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah. I never really considered what tunneling out means but you know having to create like a mine shaft basically yeah support it get air in there get light in there they didn't show it but there was a scene where he constructed another pump in his barracks (laughs) you know for alone time this one's just for me (laughs) me and my australian cock (laughs) (laughs) oi the concept of the tunnel falling on you so scary and i feel like the maybe the movie undercuts that a little bit by just dumping like one bag of potting soil on somebody when they need to have that effect yeah like that would be like pretty crushing right you can go see pictures of the camp where they where this actually took place and they have outlined the the tunnel dimensions on the ground so you can kind of walk around and look at what where the tunnel started and where it ended and it's insane it is insanely long yeah and to imagine being in there where your shoulders are touching your head is touching like there's just just you're not really even enough room definitely not enough to sit up for that distance and the idea that any amount of potting soil would fall on you i was just i was crossing and uncrossing my legs through all of those i was not expecting bronson to pull off the the pathos of the lights going out and him being stuck in the tunnel. Oh yeah. That was legit scary. Yeah. He and James Garner really steal the movie for me in terms of like realness of performance. Mm -hmm. They just were so subtle. It's a soldier's right to complain. You know, Garner, Garner doesn't have anything like super deep to sing his teeth into like that, but like all his like little kind of messing with the, with the ferret, the yeah. mole? The, the mole. No, oh, the, the ferret. ferret. Yeah, the, yeah the, the guy. The mole was the, the You know, Scott all the, the like mind games he plays on the German guard and stuff yeah. and, and the kind of like casual bravado he is. Like, hey, I, uh, I got all those documents that are impossible to get. Here they are. Like, right. those two performances were just like totally my favorites in the movie. Apparently, he actually was the scrounger in his unit in the Korean War. Oh, really? <laughs> cool. which, and I wasn't, I, I had never really heard the term. Is it a method Most actor. people forget that. Yeah, as, yeah, that's right. Most people forget <laughs> James Garner was the scrounger, uh, but it's a great it's a great nickname to have. It's a great job in any heist or yeah. caper. Yeah, like I'll be the scrounger. 
Yeah. It's uh, the like does the, not the Shawshank Redemption thing. Like the guy who can get things is like serves the most useful purpose and is often like the most fun in the group. Right. Who can because, magically just produce. Yeah. And they also, because that character also always has to have some level of charm. Yeah. Because the yeah. shit has to come through the guards most yeah. in most cases. That day, Danny the Tunnel King crawled through <laughs> 500 feet of potting soil, <laughs> came out clean on the other side. <laughs> All right. Not bad. The Kula, the Kula it was King. bad. It was bad. I think I was kind of disappointed. Not disappointed. I'd seen this a few times, but I'd forgotten how sort of jokey McQueen was. Like, this is the least cool Steve McQueen part. He was not I, McQueen cool. He was, was kind of jokey. I was really and, surprised by a couple of his facial expressions in this film. Like, when they're about to leave the tunnel and he pops up and he realizes that they're short and McQueen scrabbles back down and he's like i need the rope and then he like presents the case in the tunnel for the new plan the plan b they they stay on him for a moment and he like makes his pitch and he's like (laughs) (laughs) he makes this weird clown face about it i don't know what that was about he was making a lot of those choices throughout the film i mean he shines with the motorcycle stuff that's when he becomes cool and all that stuff is genuinely fucking cool yeah to see like it's clearly him he didn't do the jump, which at the time was like one of the greatest stunts ever performed. Yeah. Just that jump over the barbed wire. I think it's still considered a pretty great stunt. Yeah. Like when you think about the kind of motorcycles they had, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a stunt cycle. They just like painted this big triumph or whatever green. <laughs> the choice of composition for that jump, I think, is so great because like Sturgis was never, uh, he never thought about A-teaming that sequence. He like shot it wide at like three quarters, like a little bit above. Like you see the whole thing, and its realism is like unquestioned. It's great. Yeah, no, no trickery involved. Yeah, I love how they made that barbed wire. Did you read about this? No. Like Sturgis had everyone on the entire crew, from like crafty to camera people to electricians, uh, make rubber barbed wire barbs and then tie them to a longer piece of rubber. Just like in their spare time. Yeah. And so that length of barbed wire that's jumped and then landed in later uh, is all rubber. It's all rubberized and it's made by the entire crew like a a quilt. (laughs) That's pretty cool. (laughs) It is really fucked up to see him like languishing in the... Yeah. He really sells it. Yeah. I had a, a, a experience as a kid where I was like on a camping trip or something and did not had never encountered the concept of barbed wire before and tried you to jump over from a the fence tennis academy and like I was like really squirming listen to that John raised without barbed wire oh, can you mm. imagine what that would have been like <laughs> that's called privilege folks <laughs> just free roman I laugh but we had barbed wire we had a barbed wire dog pen so wow I mean it wasn't all you it wasn't goats. razor wire we found out last had, night you had goats I had goats and dogs in the same pen goats that you showed it's pretty interesting dirty magazines too <laughs> we, won't, we won't get into that uh, what was your take on the mole sort of a underused character i think in some ways there seemed to be a lot more like consciousness of what his mental status was on yeah. the like leadership part than they show on screen like everybody's like you know he's close to breaking i know good boy and i'm like is he <laughs> it didn't seem like that like, he seems all right to me he was starting to yeah, starting to come unraveled. He was spending all that time, that bravado time in the cooler. But they never show any of that. <laughs> they don't, but but I think it's got to be it's got to be harder to sit in that cooler for 20 days right. than it looks. And and uh, Steve McQueen was was 
was making the case kind of again like uh like bridge on the river Kwai. I can take it, right? Yeah. Put me in the cooler over and over. I don't care. I, I would say that that cooler is 20% worse if you're in the one next to Steve McQueen bouncing his fucking baseball. <laughs> yeah. That's what drove him mad. Yeah. <laughs> that fucking baseball. You know, that baseball is driving him batty, old boy. I like that the mole had a molish face. He really looked like his nickname to me. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you hate the Scottish people? <laughs> Not all Scots. <laughs> the guard in the cooler was like, boy, you really ha- can't have any job other than German soldier. <laughs> With a face like that. I don't know if this is true or not, but my feeling was that the that the soldier that ultimately captured Steve McQueen in the barbed wire yeah. was that guy. Oh. And I didn't rewind to put it all together, but it really felt like they they lingered on the, the soldier's face. That's some nice headcanon. And it was like, oh, it's him. God, that guy has some bone structure, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not I sure if that, that guy. guy was the guy, but... How gonna, many guys can there be? I'm going to scrub through and see if I can verify. You guys keep talking. Scrubbing through. I feel like I'd seen that ferret guy before. What is he? What has he been in? All these dudes were in everything. Robert Groff. I thought, I mean, they all had German accents, which is for the time a little different. But uh, works they, less well if everybody. Yeah, they really made the British. distinction, I think. And I think even had some real Germans like playing some of these roles. Yeah. Yeah. I think like a couple of the Germans had had like experiences similar to the jobs that they were portraying also. Yeah, wartime experience. Do you feel like it was too long? Ha! Yes! Three hours long. I think it's a different German that captures Stephen. A different German? Yeah. Uh, It's long, but I feel like it's it's like the summer movie event of 1968? 63. (laughs) 63. What's the difference, guys? Honestly. (laughs) There's an enormous difference between 1963 and 1968, whereas there is no difference between 1994 and 1997. You're probably right. I felt like it did, even though I'd seen this movie a few times, I felt like it dragged a little bit for the first time. I was aware of how long that first two hours was without a lot of like, it's kind of repetitious in parts with the cooler stuff and... Uh, I felt like they could have kind of gotten through that a little quicker. Yeah. The payoff of all that hard work being the tunnel, the, the, the getting everybody out scene where we see all the work that we've watched meticulously put together for two hours. Then we, then we start to see it unfold and there's yeah. really nothing that they build in the first two hours that we don't see it employed in that scene. The pump, the ventilation, right. the ID cards, the, you know, like each thing then has its reappearance. Right. right. Um, but I, yeah, I'm not sure we needed. So, I mean, I, it feels like one of those things. If you'd taken, if you'd taken a minute here, a minute there, a minute here, a minute there, right? You could have made it tighten, shorter. tighten it up by half an hour or something. Yeah, but there wasn't any one thing. There wasn't a character you didn't want to see, or any one thing you didn't. There care aren't about. any scenes that feel like they're fat. Like I feel like every scene kind of unfolds at a at a pace that feels right to me. It's just that there's a lot of scenes. Like there's so many set pieces. Like I feel like everybody gets their feature. Yeah. It might be the kind of movie that's tough to cut stuff from because each scene kind of like leads right into the next. Like there's yeah. there's so much connective tissue in the script like the 4th of July scene leading to leading to Tom being discovered by the Germans and and like the 
that like emotional arc is it doesn't work if you cut out the all the like um you know the fun fun and games with distilling the the moonshine which is the scene right before it you know i think i just could have used more threat and menace although clearly sturgis was going for just sort of a light adventure film yeah like that wasn't the movie he was making but i could have used more cooler time of like despair and maybe the germans really shaking them down after they find the first tunnel and it was all just sort of hogan's heroes it's all very light do you think that tone for so long makes the moment where they're executed outside the truck uh more acute like do you think that really fucked people up in 63 probably because, you know, and, and kind of comes out say? of nowhere, right? I've never felt more alive. was like <laughs> one of the last things he says yeah. before they get mowed down. That was pretty tough. And we get that contrast that, again, you do see in Hogan's Heroes, which is that when the Gestapo arrives, you're you're reminded, yeah. oh, there are baddies out there. And these guys over. are bad. Yeah. You guys know what Hogan's Heroes is? It's the uh, TV, anything. TV show that was kind of a copy of Stalag 17. Yeah, right? we watched Stalag 17 and talked about Hogan's Heroes. And oh, that, that's right. And right. Hogan was the mug that Conan O'Brien had on his desk for a long time, right? <laughs> oh, no. He had Eisenhower, I think. Wasn't that an Eisenhower mug? I thought that was Colonel Clink that he had oh, was on, it? on his desk, yeah. <laughs> Is this going to segue into a conversation about... Uh, the sexual proclivities of uh, Bob Crane. I'll, I'll, I'll always do five tight minutes on Bob Crane. <laughs> is it yeah. also that like the scariness of Nazis is a more is is more like contemporary in 1963? Like, is it still is a Western audience still like trying to kind of dispel some of the a horror of World War Two by making a a lighter movie like this? In that was a, it was a gradual realization I, we've talked about before over over 20 years how bad it was because there was a lot of whitewashing but I think uh, I think the the nice Germans or the fact that the Germans were in this movie mostly portrayed sympathetically right was a thing you wouldn't see now w- would you go see a World War two movie now and and have any any German be like, yes, I'm more or less a reasonable man. Not unless it was sort of a spoofy send up of like Hogan's heroes. They would either be like, I'm on your side or I mean, it would be it'd be played much more broadly than right. this, which is kind of like I'm doing my job. I'm a I'm a member of the German military, but I'm not a monster. I remember that thinking it was really interesting the scenes around the train like they're i mean like there's a lot of like interesting social interactions like the ss guy like with his feet up on the bench and they they uh kind of which doesn't seem like something an ss soldier would do that that seems sort of casual that might be pedantic they had a lot of ss privilege and then when Mm -hmm. they get off there's like a hitler youth kid in like short shorts and like a lady handing out flyers (laughs) and i was like are those like like true believers did you say short shorts yeah he's got like black shorts that are like they're like real up high no (laughs) short shorts maybe i miss maybe i'm misremembering i don't know no they were they were pretty short but that was the style in 63 (laughs) (laughs) did you guys think about uh what sort of tunnel person you would be and this is a little bit guy adjacent, but like when people were popping up out of the tunnel and then running for the forest, uh-huh. uh, a few of them would, you know, throw their bag up, 
pop up, look around, right. periscope, like, and then run for the forest. And then other people would just get up and run, trusting the rope signal to tell them that no one was watching. I feel like yeah, I would have a hard time running for the forest, not looking behind me at any point. <laughs> and that was some of the most nerve wracking uh, sequences of, of the film for me was, yeah. was seeing all the differences in how people approach that strategy of escape. Yeah. I would have been the guy that went back and found the uh, surveyor and was like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> you really left us out to dry here. We're 14 feet shy. Yeah, they kind of started a little bit of that. supposed to be an accurate survey. But they were like, you know, don't, like, don't waste time arguing about that. We're yeah. fucking shy. Yeah. yeah. So let's just go. Yeah. Well, and the surveyor ended up being the one that attracted the attention of the guard in the he first place. He really blew it. Because oh, he right. had the big... A white paper package, which he, seems like he a dumb wrapped thing. his yeah, bag yeah. in bubble wrap. Yeah, you got to you got to go with a low albedo package to take in your. But also, why did any of those guys have packages? I mean, you know, it's every like, yeah. single one of them has a has a an item that they're carrying with them. Well, like they talk about provisions and rations. Like, I guess. Oh, that's a good point. Sandwiches. They had some stuff. Yeah, yeah, they had their sandwiches. But in terms of like, well, when which... they make the action figures, they want them each to have an accessory, have an accessory too. Right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, in terms of which gut tunnel guy you would be, I think that's a really interesting question because, of course, there were hundreds of guys that helped build it that didn't go, and not just because it was cut short, but there were a lot of people that either opted out or weren't chosen you want to talk about darkness unseen in this film like they never cut back to a barracks of a guy washing his hands after having dug the tunnel knowing yeah. that everyone's leaving but him right right yeah because everybody was in on it there wasn't a single person in the camp yeah it was just like unaware that this was happening is it part of it that like they needed to be plausible like they do all that testing of like can you can you present your papers and kind of carry on the the like functionary oh, like you have German to audition almost plausibly? Yeah. I'm sure anybody that could speak German or French had uh, had a better chance than somebody with a deep Southern accent. I've right. always wondered, like, did, hey. like would a would a slightly bad French accent be detectable to an average German security officer? Like, because because their French is not perfect at all when they're like on the train and they're saying like. Je suis Francais OC. <laughs> the guy, you know, the guy hands them hands them their papers back. Like, I, uh, I guess I just I just don't know because I don't live in in Europe. But like, the, would would they know or were we just asked it, to it suspend disbelief there? Totally depend on who you yeah. encountered, right? I mean, there were there were there was an entire movie going audience that was expected to to accept James Coburn as yeah. Australian. So uh, ac accent sensitivity isn't right. <laughs> but, but like, that's a big scene in, in glorious bastards, right? Where he, he's finally discovered by the way he holds up his fingers to indicate three, right. whether he felt like a nod to this a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That because he gets busted bit. at the end with, yeah, was he the one that earlier had said, yeah, like McDonald's going to get find out. Yeah. He was, he was, portraying the the nazi officer in uh -huh. the in the practice run right right and like and that undoes him good in the luck end. yeah it's very good that's a great line reading right <laughs> good luck so is that guy just going around saying that to everybody just testing them or, or he's he's been he's been scrambled because they know a huge jailbreak has taken place i mean the thing that you, that you have to wonder is any male civilian in germany at this point 
Yeah, they're all like of war fighting age. Right? Yeah, right. So why aren't you in the army? Yeah. Would be the automatic question that you would ask anytime you saw a 35 year old guy walking around. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, so you I would dress up as an old. <laughs> but like they didn't have to. Hey, you're never too old for the Volkster. <laughs> why are you? Why are you a little later? <laughs> or get like a cane or something and act like you know you clearly have some some sort of malady. Yeah, that's see, that's a great idea. Yeah. Why why more people didn't uh, yeah. affect a limp? Get some trying to escape. Put some tar on a couple of your teeth. Be like, I have these teeth. I can't be in the military. <laughs> I'd be no good. But you know they they uh, they did check papers of people just in Germany at the time. It was part of the... Just walking around? Yeah, it was just part of the control system of of the Nazis to have everybody always spying on each other and... It's kind of like how you have to show your driver's license at the airport now, man. Yeah, man. It's kind of like when the cops pull you over and they want to see your ID. It's bullshit. Uh, I liked how the... How it was like, you know, one by air, two by air two by C one guy on a motorcycle gone to Coburn the Aussie on his bicycle the Which guys on the genius. train the bicycle I that was absolutely some of the best escape for me is just like oh you get on a bike nobody's gonna stop you yeah. <laughs> just to get on a bike you could ride for weeks yeah yeah what a, a good fun point. trip that plane escape scene was fun too yeah though uh starting the motor of an aircraft without being able to see has got to be the scariest thing right. possible, right? Yeah. Don't go that way once you hear Oof. the motor, the engine crank. Yeah, I thought Pleasance was great at portraying uh, someone who's blind he or has severely compromised that. vision. Like, like there's act drunk as a difficult thing to do, and then yeah. act blind has got to be a totally different cat. Like, yeah. he do. He was great at that. Yeah, he was. Yeah, those flying scenes were gorgeous. That was plane authentic. was real, but yeah. it's it's T sixes all the time. In yeah, these war that's films. right. So the, the, all the planes on the runway there uh-huh. on the taxiway, they were all T six Texans, which is weird that at that point, which are American. Okay, uh, and th- those are also the stand in planes for Japanese zeros in a lot of these movies. Yeah, like, right. They were American trainers that that we had a lot of. Yeah, but you would think a movie of this kind of budget that was filming in Germany in could Germany. have come up with a couple of yeah, that's Bach too. wolves or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, I liked how low he was flying too, just sort of skirting the treetops. Uh, which there's know. not like radar cover to be worried about at this point, is there? Like in, no. within German airspace, they didn't have radar, did they? Who the fuck is running that airbase? Also, they, they never airbase. launch a fighter after the guy. They're, they just yeah. watch him go. Is it does, that he gets too much of a head start? They would never be able to catch him. Well, it's like you'd want to at least try. Yeah, yeah, because you would be, you know, shot or something. That's You're clearly like, well, what the did you slowest plane on the yeah, field that they nothing. took. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I ran out with a pistol. He really had the jump on us, so. Yeah. They they did have radar in World War II, but maybe no, not like ground radar at a at a training air base. I thought the British were the only ones with radar. Is that I mean, radar, wrong about that? Well, radar was invented and developed and, and perfected throughout the course of the war. Huh. So. As plane crashes go, though, for the time, not bad. They came in pretty hot. And got clipped by that tree. I mean, it was believable enough. Yeah, they wrecked that plane. Yeah. <laughs> so is James Garner a Eagle Squadron guy? Like he's an American in a who joined the British... Canadian. He joined the Canadian Air Force to oh. fight before we entered the war. Wow. So there were there were quite a few of those yeah. American pilots. He's like, he's Ben Affleck, but right. 
that exactly. that didn't go well, right in Pearl Harbor. Well, also. also in the Doolittle Raid and also in the... <laughs> but there was one of the people that escaped, one of the actual people that escaped uh, during the during the real escape was a Doolittle Raider. Wow. One of those Doolittle Raiders got made it through China, got repatriated, wow. and then went to Europe and, and flew as a bomber pilot got shot down and was at the camp and was part of this whole escape. Where is that movie? Holy I mean, crap. Well, it's Pearl Harbor starring Ben Affleck, except uh, except mm. uh, we didn't really focus on him as much as we could have. Yeah, that guy, uh, incredible life. Incredible. So how many people got out? Is it 70 something? Oh, 76 and three of them actually made it. Wow. And in real life, the three that made it, two of them were Norwegians and one of them was Dutch. So... No Americans or British or anything like that survived. Hmm. And presumably because they probably had pretty good language. Yeah, they they could blend in a little bit better. You know, it, it struck me that, like, the escape in Europe is greatly aided by everybody's, like, European heritage. Like, I guess most of them are British, but, like, the, you know, the couple of Americans, like, the, like if you're... Like, you couldn't have this movie in a war in Afghanistan. Like, nobody would buy it. and Or in the Japanese theater. That was the, right. that was the thing about, um, about the Doolittle Raider movie was these guys were in China and... They stood out like sore thumbs. Yeah, the, it wasn't uh, going to yeah. be... It's not possible to hide them or deny they'd been there. Well, and there's no fence in Bridge on the River Kwai. It's like, where are you going to go? Right, right. <laughs> Dork. <laughs> yeah, I like the resistance scene in the cafe... Yeah, that cut that I kind of had forgotten about that, and that took me by surprise a bit when Coburn got up, the phone rang, and they basically he was like, "You might want to." I love the physical the comedy here. of that scene where the two guys do the elevator behind the bar <laughs> and get behind it, yeah. and then and he's like, like, "Oh, I see what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, we're doing the canoe. Oh, cool." <laughs> My daughter loves that bit. <laughs> yeah, but that was a straight up drive by. Yeah. You know? Yeah. These guys are just having some. What were they having, by the way? It was something. They're uh, having Pernod. Yeah, Pernod, right. But you mix it with it's a, it's water? A, it's a pastis, a like uh, absinthe. Okay. I think everybody in France is either like a Pernod person or a Ricard person. They all like have a feeling about which uh-huh. is the better one to drink. And they are owned by liquor mega conglomerate Pernod Ricard. <laughs> So it's like, are you more of a graveyard man? You'll just yeah. pour them both into the same glass. Every nation of Europe has an an anisette, a little like aperitif, right? And they all taste exactly the same. And I'm sorry to say this to all the people out there who are like, no, ouzo is amazing. They all just are. They taste like licorice, and they are awful. Was that realistic though for three German officers in an afternoon just sitting down at a cafe and having some drinks? Like it, everything just seems so. It, none of it seemed like wartime. Well, they were occupied France. Those, they, some of them might have been Vichy Frenchies in German uniforms, I think. I don't, I don't think that we got enough of them talking to establish whether they were of German or French extraction. But, but before D-Day, there were Germans all throughout France, and it was kind of like considered a posh uh, place to sit out the war, right? Because they're, sure. they're not on the Russian front. They're just there. Right. 
having Pernod. Yeah, sitting out the war al fresco. Yeah. <laughs> Little did they know they really yeah. uh, the, not great reflexes on those on those officers when they stand like, up and what? see. <laughs> Whoa, that guy's got a belt-fed machine gun coming out of the back of that Citroen. <laughs> what? <laughs> so the three Coburn makes it right, presumably, mm-hmm. and the three and it's uh, Bronson and and the other guy in their rowboat, which again was just oh. genius. Yeah. They had a really easy time of it. They rode right up to that Swedish boat. And <laughs> it had it happened to have a ladder yeah. right there at water level. Trick Swedish boats where they uh, drop the panels on the sides and it's suddenly a German warship. <laughs> Sturgis paid the captain of that bigger boat to turn around and, and position in the right light yeah. for that scene. I kept waiting on a Nazi jet ski to come around the corner. <laughs> There was a there was a goof on IMDb about that scene too because there's there's like automated crane uh, container cranes in the background of that and sh- that, that scene and that that's like a 1950s and 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 uh, more recent invention like uh. containerization wasn't invented until after the war, uh. which is like so weird to think about like I mean like the biggest project of moving crap all over the planet and they didn't have shipping containers. <laughs> Like no, they just crates, had stevedores like manually unloading boxes. unloading ships. It's a good union job. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> That's why uh, stevedores are always throwing their wooden shoes into the uh, into the container cranes these days. What's the matter, Vernon? My wallet, my papers, my identity card, gun. Well, if you haven't heard this show before, I think. One of the things you have to do on a movie podcast is review the film, and for every film... We, we didn't know that when we first started yeah. our movie podcast. How, how many episodes did we go before we figured out we had to I think it was them? two. I think it was super it early. Yeah, it wasn't many. I think it was yeah. like 12. What? Yeah. No. Because so, there was a... We had a, a listener make like a spreadsheet of all, all our rankings and share it with us recently. Oh, no. I think it was. And he kind of dragged us for not reviewing a bunch of the movies. <laughs> That's like really I, helpful. There was one episode, I might be wrong, that I remember you guys, one of you went through your spiel but never said what the actual rating was. Oh, yeah. Well, we cut the boring stuff out. I, I might be wrong, but it's like, <laughs> wait a minute. It's like you, you reviewed yeah, it, we, but you didn't. We suck at this, Chuck. We're bad. <laughs> We've learned a lot while uh, making this show. What else bothered me about your show? Uh, all right, Adam. Adam, take yeah, it away. So That's for, the one that bothers the, me. The rule is, like for every war film we discuss, so too is attached a, a custom rating system. We do that so that films aren't compared to one another. Right. Uh, and for... Yeah, which is like totally ignored by this guy with this spreadsheet. It's not like he has different columns for all of our different rating systems. Yeah, that guy's got it all wrong. He's reverting it to stars, and that's not what they are, man. Oh, no, he needs to have a new column on his spreadsheet that uh, describes the the rating Is he uh, doing method. rating erasure and, and substituting with stars? Because that yeah. is fucked up. I uh, I actually, <laughs> I mean, just to, just to throw off all the math, I'm uh, retroactively reviewing all of the movies that we did not give reviews to, one star. <laughs> they all sucked yeah tough but fair i think we talked a lot about the tone of this film and maybe the issues we had with it being not quite as dark as war films typically are for their time and there is an item in the film i think that embodies that feeling the most it's a scene between blythe and henley where blythe is making his shitty tea and he can't do it without the milk and he's like, you know, in a POW camp, you can make tea that's all right. But if you really want to class it up, 
he need the milk. And almost immediately, and Henley returns with the milk and changes the whole game. And it's really like, that's the sensibility of the film. This is, this is milk in your World War II film tea. This is like an enjoyable <laughs> war film hang yeah. that is not meant to evoke a sense of roughing it or darkness or hardship in yeah. any way. There's no menace, not much at least. Yeah, and that is one aspect to the film that is unfortunate for a film that I approached expecting greatness. Yeah. The other aspect to it is that we have been watching a lot of ensemble films where you get hyper-efficient character development. And I think one of the ways that this film does not succeed entirely for me is that these characters are defined by what they do and not who they are. Right. And to me, a nickname is not a substitution for a character. Yeah. And for as much time as this film takes to give you plot... And for what you guys believe to be deep character development, I didn't get that feeling much. Yeah. And a lot of these characters felt the same to me other than their nickname. And so, like, while I liked the film a lot, I did not love it. And those are two ways that I didn't. And so for that reason, I'm going to give it a good but not great four cans of milk. Four cans. Four cans still a pretty thick rating that's some, yeah. that's some thick milk that's the <laughs> yeah that's whole milk i don't like milk in my tea either You're crazy oh, milk in your tea is great the best really yeah it really is you need yeah. to you need to reprogram your brain a little bit because you spent a lot of time being the enemy of milk yeah. in all things it's true now that milk is back on the menu boys all right i think you should uh, i think you should give it another chance yeah let's have some milky tea together later great i'm into it all right um, this is a, a classic for me and one that I, I love rewatching. I have nostalgia for watching it with my mom and dad when I was a kid. And I feel like it's, uh, it, it's still great. And, uh, I, I love all the characters in it. And I think it's, it's going to be one of the movies that I revisit throughout my life. So I'll give it uh four and a half cans of milk. Hmm. So. I found myself when I watch movies for Movie Crush through a more studied lens and a more critical eye than just every other time I've seen this film. Uh-huh. I found myself liking this one a little less than I had in the past. It felt a little long and a little too light and goofy at times with the McQueen stuff. I think I would have, like I mentioned earlier, I, it could have used a little more menace, a little more like show the mole losing his mind in that cooler a little bit. Um, don't just say, well, he's going mad. And then he <laughs> has his one scene where, you know, runs and, you know, does suicide by cop basically. Um, so I found myself a little more critical this time for a movie that in the past I just sort of enjoyed thoroughly. So I'm going to, I'm going to take it back to, uh, I'm going to take it back to four cans of milk which is still high, but I previously probably would have been in the four and a half range. You don't have to, you don't have to be influenced by me. I'm not good. <laughs> in no way is he influenced by you. Good. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I agree with you, Chuck. I have watched this movie a bunch of times. This was like late night television with my dad. Um, 
watching i've seen this movie on a black and white tv i've seen it on an early color tv and how does it look in black and white because i feel like it's it's a very spectacular movie and you you shoot a little differently for color than you do for black and white but this is in the era when i think they probably had to think about both yeah panavision is is not like super snappy colors it's all pretty muted and uh, i mean the colors are beautiful but they're not it's they're not like hyper real. They're not uh, Avengers Endgame or Thor Ragnarok level. But at the time during the black and white television era, you didn't really think about it. You just that was what you got. Right. But watching it this time, I realized, yeah, it's a it's like a boy's life movie. Um, they're at camp. Camp isn't that bad. They're away from their moms and dads, which is sad. <laughs> and the beds are uncomfortable. But you know, there's we never even. There's never those even trick like a, beds that you fall through yeah, three bunks. Yeah, on. like that moment is so goofy. Yeah, it's goofy, and the camera really lingers on him being like, yeah. Um, but you know, we never talk about is that. The uh, comeuppance that Cavendish gets for doing a bad survey, and for and for attracting the attention of the guard. Cavendish yeah. could get a lot worse in this movie. I think. Yeah, um, named after my favorite variety of banana, though. <laughs> Boy, that Ooh. one really took off. Yeah. <laughs> but we never, you know, we never confront lice. We never, th- we never see a latrine, right? They don't, we don't see them drink, uh, digging or cleaning a latrine or latrine at all. It's just not even in the, in the movie. Uh, and so, so the lack of toilets. Why are you <laughs> so obsessed with poops and peas, John? Well, I'm trying, I'm auditioning to be on greatest gen. <laughs> Uh, but I, but I feel like that's an example of how much, I mean, there's a lot of this movie that's like, no, the war was just, it was just a lark, but this movie really, really washed it clean. And so it, so yeah, you have to ask like, what is, what is the message of this w- movie vis-a-vis war? And it's from that era of just like war is good sport. And this is right before Vietnam kicked off. 63 is still in a time when the greatest generation is still young and still dominating the culture and we still believe that war is is just and that we defeated the Hun. And we're only a few years away from the country taking a dramatic turn in how it thinks about war. And so you could get away with a movie like this. And I think if this movie came out in 68, it would be, it would start to look like uh, John Wayne's Green Berets where the culture would have responded to it like, this is corny. Right. Um, we, the country evolved so much in the next five years that... Yeah. that um, does the, does it, the fact that it comes out in the era before that mean that like, there's, no, there's no sense, even subconsciously, that they're working in defiance of a, a shift in the, in the mood so it doesn't have that corniness to it? There's no, def- there's no defiance in it because, it's, because the... I mean, the only alternative culture at the time was like beat, beat poets or whatever. But there was no, nobody was making a critique of the U.S. war machine. Right. Except like Eisenhower kind of generally saying, hey, look out for Hey, this. I could see there being a potential downside to this. Yeah. But like a bunch of British guys in a prison camp, like coming, making a Rube Goldberg escape yeah. machine. It was just, it was just for fun. And so... So the a three hour caper movie with a with no complexity 
was harder to watch this time yeah. and just surrender to. I had, and maybe it's because we've been doing this this podcast and looking at war movies. I've started to wonder what are what is this movie saying about war? And this movie isn't saying much. That said, as a boy, the idea of escaping from a prison camp and trying to make it across Germany without getting caught and not speaking German was a like from watching this movie for the first time when I was probably seven or eight, that became a constant fantasy game for me. <laughs> this is like play. a foundational element of your personality. It really is, right? I mean, every <laughs> time I, this movie was made for, though, I think looking yeah. back, it was made for like dads and their sons to go see sort of a fun adventure film. Yeah. Anytime I was alone in town or in the in Anchorage anywhere walking alone, I immediately was like, I'm in Nazi Germany and I'm <laughs> going to make it all the way home without anybody, uh, you know, figuring out that I'm an escaped prisoner. That's adorable. Big time. Right. And I still think about it. When I lay in bed last night, I was like, okay, how would I make it from here? That <laughs> was an enemy territory. Few people compare Max von Kahn with Nazi Germany. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have to, you know, I have to ding it um, for the reasons that you described. So I'm going to say uh, that it's um, you know when you're 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 somewhere else you're you're making some tea you want a little milk and you open up the little mini fridge in the dressing room and there's a there's a thing of milk in there but it's open yeah and so you open it up you lift it up and you kind of give it a sniff to see I was hoping this would happen to see if uh, <laughs> if it's like still good because it know, could have been in you there bring for that weeks. up because we we're in the midst of our friendly fire tour as of this record and we were in a gr in a green room and found just such a carton of milk in uh, Seattle I want to say and I wasn't having coffee but somehow I was the one that got nominated to smell the milk mmm how did that happen? That's your call sign. <laughs> milk <laughs> smeller. Smell the milk. Uh, so I'm going to give it. This is milk smeller. That's a big 10 for. Three unopened cans Whoa. of milk and one open can of milk. Suspicious <laughs> open can. Where you're like, hmm, this, it could be a full and fresh and delicious can, but there's the, the uncertainty oh. whether or not this can has been sitting out. And poquito sospechoso. <laughs> Great rating. So the other thing we always do on Friendly Fire is uh, is we pick the, the guy that we spotted in the film that we most identify with. Uh, Chuck, do you want to lead us off? Who's your guy? Yeah, so, you know, they're rehearsing Christmas carols through a lot of this movie. To cover up that they're like banging on yeah on ductwork that they're manufacturing yeah, surreptitiously exactly. nothing covers that up than <laughs> like nine guys singing silent night five gold rings <laughs> clink uh so there was uh there was one of those moments where um who was who the guy is it cavendish the is, surveyor yeah the the choir leader yeah and he, the yeah, the oh yeah, he's from, surveyor and choir leader. Yeah. Not that great at either. <laughs> the the shot was from behind him facing the choir. And I don't know if you remember, but there was this one guy on the left of the frame that by all accounts should have been just hidden behind the guy in front of him. And he was completely leaning out to the left <laughs> to show his face. Yeah. And was was not uh very expressive. He did he looked like a like a bad extra 
leaning way out to the side. I don't know if you noticed. I totally that noticed that guy. But, That's a great uh, guy. Yeah, that that was my guy. That would have been me <laughs> trying to get a little screen time. Mom, look there. Yeah, I am. exactly. <laughs> my guy is Tunnel King Willie. Uh, who is the there's there's the two diggers Danny is the Charles Bronson character and Willie is the other the other one who really I mean like you know it's kind of a thankless thing that he does but he really like goes out on a limb for Danny and really cares about him and makes sure that he gets through the tunnel but also in a way that like he can cope with and I think you guys made some good points about the kind of lack of characterization in the film but I thought that that was a very like human and and humane thing and I liked that they had that kind of that bond with each other that that they that they could trust each other that much and I thought it was so awesome that they like you know that Willie saw Danny through the escape and then they actually make it in the end. Yeah. So uh Willie was my guy for being for doing Danny that solid. How great would it have been if the continuation of this movie was those guys just in a relationship together in Switzerland. Yeah. Just like walking down this cobblestone street holding hands. Well, so from the beginning of hey, the movie. you said you'd go get some milk and bread. <laughs> when they first appear, you didn't. You're dead. <laughs> this ain't over. <laughs> when they first appear, there is, at the beginning of the movie, right, they're always together, these two. And yeah. there is an extremely homoerotic feeling to their relationship yeah they're similarly sized they're very touchy with each other yeah. from the beginning they're the tunnel kings i mean and come on they have a le- they have s- they have several moments including that one where which Bronson's one's the like, tunnel though <laughs> <laughs> it's not me baby <laughs> they, switch up. The they switch off they're both diggers <laughs> uh, it's pretty clear who's the bottom here <laughs> Um, there's the moment where Brunson takes the shower and I think it's, um, it's the Australian guy that's like, I'm a lifeguard. I'm yeah. watching him take a shower. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, I'd be watching too, man. Yeah. Charles Bronson with his shirt off back then. was Leathering uh, up my crink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Anyways, you were I'm making sorry, a point, John. John. Oh no, I think the point's made. Yeah. <laughs> I really like Willie in that scene, Ben, because he like his encouragement is never shaming. Yeah, there's no judgment of this being a big problem for Danny. And it's never made into a you're going to fuck us if you don't go through the tunnel. Like like kind of a lot is riding on you, buddy. It's always like you dug the tunnel, man. It's only right that you go through. Just summon the courage for the five minutes yeah, you need. We're going to get through and then we're yeah. going to be out. And that was an area that it could have gone dark and, and didn't. He really cares about him. And in a way, he's the that's the only relationship between anybody in this movie where you feel, except for Garner and Pleasance. Yeah, Garner yeah. and Pleasance have a very similar. Yeah, right. that's a very sweet relationship. And they also play chess with each other. So there's another element to it. <laughs> so it's a very three-dimensional human relationship <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so who's your guy? Did you already? Oh, I haven't done my guy. No. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll I'll do my guy. Yeah, I'd like to hear it. Uh, my guy is the uh, is the German officer who is like in charge of the camp, and um, uh, not not the commandant, but the but the officer. He's the tallest guy in the movie, and he's the day to day running the camp guy. He's got um, a lot of the 
So the commandant has gold epaulets, which means he's like a general staff officer in the Luftwaffe. This guy has red epaulets, which means he's in the Luftwaffe, but he's a artillery officer. So something happened in his career where he ended up here. This isn't like, this wasn't his original job. Well, he was uh, working at a uh, secret sub base in, in the North Sea. And he bullseyed an American submarine as it was leaving their, their compound. And <laughs> they're like, one you get any job you want. What do you want? <laughs> but, uh, but of all the, I mean, we've talked a lot about the kind of humanizing of the Germans. But this guy is just a mensch, right? He's the one with the pitchfork. Right. But he's clearly doing it not intending to stab anybody. He's doing it as, a, as theater. I guess I got to use the damn pitchfork. Yeah, like, here we go. He's the one that recognizes. He pulls guys out of the line. He pulled, yeah. pulled Bronson out of the line because he knew him by name. He's like, he's like memorized the Facebook of the incoming class of Stalag Luft 3 or whatever. Right. <laughs> but he's, he's never cruel to anybody. He's the guy that discovers the, the tunnel. Like yeah. he's the main. He's never punitive. Never. He's the main sort of German antagonist. But you also get the feeling that you could just sit around with this guy, and he's like a. He just. I liked him from the moment he arrived on the screen, and I and like through the whole movie. The one person that I felt bad about in this movie was when uh, when the escape was made. Like he he was gonna. Although wait, no, that's the best part about this guy. The commandant loses his job, and he still had. He's still standing there on the porch when the new commandant comes. Like he's, he just sort of, he's there getting it done. Never, never does anybody a mean. Only yeah. in the Great Escape can you be like the the Nazi running the prisoner of war camp. Great guy. <laughs> he's just Solid really dude. kind of yeah. a sweetheart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the idea of there being a Nazi mensch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hell of a combination. He's not a Nazi. He's a, he's he's just a German doing his German job. Yeah. Yeah. You're uh, always at great pains to make that distinction, John. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Both sides. You see my guy in maybe the most stressful part of the film, which is the train station scene. And the reason it's so stressful in that moment is because they're so close to the end, and yet they're all together in in such close proximity to being caught like they're out in the open and yet they're confined and yet they're about to go into an even more confined space so the entire scene is very pregnant with guys like looking at each other like going when is when the fuck is this train gonna be here it's nuts and when the train finally arrives so too does my guy because we cut to a shot of train coming at screen yeah <laughs> which yeah, is my Ad, Adam I heard you yelling in yeah. your in your uh, hotel room last night <laughs> <laughs> There is a guy standing a foot away from the rails as the steam engine comes through and does not flinch or move whatsoever, and it comes a foot away from his face. You admired that because you were watching it on your iPad screen and you ran out of the room. (laughs) I think that guy low-key steals the scene Uh because of that. Like, that, that feeling of dread of, oh my God, the train's finally coming, and then things just don't feel right in that scene at all because there are Nazis there and there are cops there and so are our heroes and we're waiting and just waiting and waiting. And then when the train comes, like it's only going to get worse and people don't look like they're acting right. And one of the ways, one of the things that embodies that is that guy just not moving next to the train and it's creepy. Yeah. I don't think I noticed that. And that guy's my guy for it. Yeah. Is the implication that the commandant is going to be put to death over this? Sent to the Russian front or something. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he was a known 
quantity too. And I think he did get sent to the Russian front in, in real life. Kind of a, a menchy Nazi. Yeah. He wasn't as menchy. <laughs> you guys should pick another film. Because I, I think that would be yeah, a, a way to entice movie crushers yeah. oh, nice. so, to follow through with Friendly Fire. On Friendly Fire, we always pick our next movie uh, randomly. And yeah, I think we, we should say, uh, as we as we pick this, uh, if you liked this episode, you'll probably love Chuck Bryant's podcast, Movie Crush. Thanks. And uh, if you're listening to this on Movie Crush, come check out some episodes of Friendly Fire. Yeah, I've noticed there's some crossover I've seen on Facebook. Some Yeah, I think a lot of people, people have found both shows. Yeah. Like, you know, there's that, and that's been really cool. The way we pick our movie on Friendly Fire is we roll a hundred-sided die. Man, I wanted to see that thing. And so, well, I have it right here. So here we go. We're going to roll the hundred-sided die. Ready? <laughs> 72. 72 is a 2018 movie about a war correspondent called A Private War. It's Rosamund Pike playing a, a war correspondent. She's got, like, the eye patch on the poster. This was on every bus bench in L.A. for, like, one week. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, I don't really know anything about this one, but uh, I I think I basically put it on our, our on our list on the strength of it being... The bus ads worked, huh? A, a bus ad movie with the word war in the title, so... I guess they Sometimes were brave enough takes. to cover up part of Roseman Pike's face yeah. for the film. One of the most celebrated war correspondents of our time, Mari Colvin, is... An utterly fearless and rebellious spirit driven to the front line of conflicts across the globe to give voice to the voiceless. Wow. So uh, that'll be next week on Friendly Fire. Roderick flushing the toilet is a great way to finish this episode. I love that Roderick just left the show. (laughs) See ya. See ya, John. Amazing show. Love to be the podcast. Big time just there. Uh, Well, uh, I guess we'll leave it with Rob's, Rob's, Rob's from there. So for John Roderick, Adam Pranica, and the great Chuck Bryant. I've been Ben Harrison to the victor. Go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, John Roderick, and Adam Pranica. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. A big thanks to Chuck Bryant for joining in on today's episode. Make sure to check out his podcast, Movie Crush. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you feel like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate. It helps us keep the lights on over here at Friendly Fire. And as an added bonus, you'll get access to our Pork Chop feed, as well as all of the other bonus content on Maximum Fun. If you'd like to share the show online, use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.